G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm really excited to have Lacey Philippic along, the author of Money School and also founder of Money School, who have a number of programs to teach people all the things we should have learned about money when we were growing up. Now, there's a real gap when I go deeper with people, and that gap is the financial education that is missing and needed as a real solid foundation in building wealth. So what I see happening is people start to create wealth, they start to make some money, but their foundation isn't solid and they're actually sinking backwards faster with the more money that they make. So I really wanted to seek out Lacey. I read her book, absolutely love it. You've got to get a copy of it. It's called Money School. But today we're going to go through lots of ins and outs on the financial education that is an absolute must. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. G'day, Lacey. Thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to chat. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Jared. And a fellow Perth girl, I should say, um, an electrical engineer. So we've both got quite a few commonalities and (laughs) your book and programs go out to the whole of the world. It's awesome to chat to another Perth Inge, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, there's a few of us in the finance community. I think it's great. So do you think, how do you feel about making that transition from engineering out? Because I did the same and everyone always says to me, oh, you know, was it a waste doing engineering? Like, do you regret it? And it really impacts, I guess, your thinking and how you try to systemize things. And I've picked up a lot of that in your book and your whole approach, which is probably why I resound and connect with it. And you make the complex simple. So how much has engineering kind of helped with your next phase of things? Oh, I think engineering has been instrumental for me. You've covered it pretty well there. I think that systematic thinking and problem solving. And I think that might be why we see so many engineers in the FIRE community, you know, the financially independent retiring early. There seems to be a plethora of them. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the famous people who are renowned for it have some kind of engineering okay. background. Often it's software engineering not so much chemical or electrical or anything like that. So I think there must be something about the structured way we're taught to problem solve that lends itself to thinking about finance and investing. Yeah. We all like numbers and, you know, when you actually sit down and do a projection and think, oh, where am I actually going to get this money to be in a position to make choices and to be independent? And that's probably why we start thinking about it a little bit earlier than most. Yeah, quite likely. And I think the willingness to wield a spreadsheet helps. You know, that's the other thing I think. I talk to people about most finance is just algebra. It's not really complicated numbers. That's why I always get upset when someone says, I'm not yeah, good with math, so I'm good with, not good with money. Don't I go, let well, it be not. a barrier. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's definitely not hard maths. And so I think that's why we sort of probably go, oh, this bit's easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you say, where am I going to get that money from? And what is my best choice that becomes more complicated? But in your book, Money School, you did really break it down and make financial independence possible for anyone. So what is financial independence to you? Firstly, why why should someone even get into this? Well, yeah, it's a really, it's a fundamental question. Why would you care? Look, I think we're sold this 
reality at the moment, which is you're going to work your butt off for about 50 years. And at the end of it, you're going to get a pension or you're going to live off your superannuation in Australia. And we're kind of told that that's the way life's going to be, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because what you're doing when you're working is trying to create enough money to live. And when you get to that point where you can't work anymore, you're either relying on what you've saved into super or you're relying on the government to give you a pension, right? And that's how most people think life's going to go. But of course, there are things that can pay you an income other than your work. And I think that's the point of financial independence is using the money that you earn from working to buy these assets that are going to pay you. And if you do that early in life, then you don't have to wait till you're old and grey to retire. You can retire any time that you have enough income from your assets. And I think that's not something that's widely spoken about. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about why that might be, you know, just considered more normal or safe or that, hey, we want you paying tax for a long time, that sort of thing. But I want more people to be aware that financial independence is an option and it just requires some planning and doing some actions early in life rather than waiting till you're, what typically people do is wait till they're about 50 and then go, oh, what am I going to do? You got to do it a bit earlier than that. Yeah, the freak out. <laughs> yeah. And the trouble yeah. is when you start late, not that it's impossible, but you don't have the power of compounding along the way. And I guess that pressure I've seen cause people to make ill-informed or riskier decisions that because they're trying to condense what should be a longer period into I need to achieve this in five years. Not yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of downsides to. Yeah, and it's not that you can't do it at that point. I mean, I yeah. often tell people about my mum. She didn't start investing until she was 49, so that's quite late. But because she was quite conservative and didn't take a lot of risk and also had we had a great period in the market then, that was just luck, right? And so there was luck yeah. and there were sensible decisions. So she got to financial independence at 63, which might not sound like a lot, right, but it's still two years that she didn't have to work. And it turned out to be a pretty important two years for her. So I think it's... We'll consider up for the rest of that retirement phase. Exactly. Too, yeah. Know. Yeah, exactly. And and that ability to choose, because often when you get to that age, you see grandparents wanting to spend more time with family, wanting to spend time with the grandkids, maybe wanting to travel. The sooner you can get there, the better, because you just don't know how long you're going to be around for, right? Exactly. And you mentioned your mum in the book and how instrumental she was to imparting some of this financial education and give us a bit of insight into your mum and how how she went about it. Yeah, so she's she is amazing and it's very, very good that I have money school because we founded it together. So and sadly she passed away last year and and so the memory of that is kind of what powers money school. But really that's what money school is, is me teaching people what she taught me. <laughs> Obviously I've learned a lot over the years. But she never went for a big lecture. She never sat down and went, today, Lacey, we're going to learn about compounding or anything like that. She just planted a lot of little seeds. And look, when we were little, she split up with my dad when I was about eight. We never had a lot of money. It was tight, but she was a magician with money. She really knew how to stretch a dollar because of her accounting and bookkeeping background. And she just really was impressive with that. I never felt like we went without, but was very clear that we were making conscious decisions. And I think that's what I started to become aware of as a kid. And she'd just plant seeds. Oh, Lacey, did you know if your money's in the bank, it earns interest? Or, hey, you know, that money that you've got saved, yeah, you could spend it on a car, but that would be a deposit for an apartment. And all of those were just designed to be those little dangling hooks because you know what teenagers yeah. are like, right? You know, we we don't want to be lectured <laughs> to, but you dangle a hook and we go, what? Huh? Um, and that's how she went about teaching. She was very savvy in that way. But we actually sort of invested at the same time. She'd always owned houses that we lived in and sometimes they were really 
cheap crappy houses <laughs> um, and as she started to earn more money she would try and upgrade to a nicer home to get a bit more space so that we'd have a lovely time at home but the result of that was most of her saving went into a mortgage rather than investing but at the same time we started getting into property and then into shares she's a was a bit more interested in risk than I was, which was fascinating considering she was older. She was much happier trading foreign exchange. She was into crypto. She was the one who got into options trading stuff. She didn't take insane risks, but she was happy to take a little bit more risk than I was because I'm lazy and I don't like losing. (laughs) So it was good (laughs) to have that experience of someone who was older but happier to take a little bit more risk because I think we get told your risk profile is based purely on your age. No, it's not. It's a bit on your mindset. So seeing her go through that was really informative for me. Awesome. So now you're kind of being the uh, financial educating mum to (laughs) everyone else, the mum we never had. (laughs) (laughs) It is a bit like that. I do get told it's a bit like having a chat with a parent or a mate who knows a lot about money and you, and I try to keep that conversational tone. But I think that's the thing. I didn't realise until I was in my 20s, that we didn't all get this. I kind Mm. of assumed everyone's parents were telling them this stuff. But, of course, if your parents don't know, how are you ever going to learn? And I know it's getting better. It's definitely embedded in the curriculum now. There's still a lot of variety about how well it's taught. But the, the theory is there. We're moving in the right direction, I think. But there's a whole generation of people who just didn't get to talk about this. It wasn't comfortable to talk about it at home and people didn't know how to explain it well. So that's, I guess, why Money School exists. Thank you for creating it (laughs) because there is a big gap in people's financial education and I think before when I was chatting to you weeks ago, I was saying that I just want to try to help people bridge that gap and find out what they don't know because it can be like having a weak foundation. You start building on it, you start gaining money and you can be sinking and going backwards quicker than you're going forwards. So. Do you mm. see that in people? I bet it sometimes yeah. takes a crisis for someone to maybe even come to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you I'm see it sure a lot. You see a lot. Yeah, and, you know, I because of what I do, I do get a lot of queries. People send me, can you help me? I'm, I'm struggling. And, of course, I don't do financial advice, so I have to refer them to a counsellor or an advisor usually. But in general, it is exactly as you describe. They've been told a little piece of information or they've been given a very select piece of info and they've made decisions based on that without understanding the full scope, and it is risky. And I think particularly with property, I see this so much because you go into debt usually for property, that magnifies that risk, right? So, yeah. yeah, I think it is important that people make sure they understand the whole picture, not just what they've been given by the person trying to sell them a particular product, which exactly. is unfortunately where a lot of this starts, yeah. And taking you back to when you were starting out, you also read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which was an absolute favour of mine, and you said in your book that it was like you were awake and someone um, was giving you the red pill to take in the matrix and you could, you know, tell us about that epiphany. Yeah, and it was around the time The Matrix came out. I remember it being a really vivid visual connection for me, like, oh, this is my version of The Matrix. For me, it was just having the blinders taken off. It was that whole I thought life was going to be earn a lot of money while you're working, put some away for retirement in super. And super was still fairly new at that point. I mean, it had only been around since 92 and this is late 90s when I started reading that book. And 
I just thought that was life and you'd go on a pension. And to see that there was an alternative and to understand particularly business ownership was fascinating for me and the way that people manage their expenses, this whole idea of, well, you can spend your after-tax dollars or you can spend money beforehand and then be taxed on the remainder. Of course, my mother being an accountant was fascinated by that and Mm -hmm. she'd seen a lot of it, right, because she'd been managing private clients and she was watching what they were doing going, wow, this is amazing. And so it was just that moment of, being aware that it existed. Now, he's copped a lot of flack in recent years for his approaches, but I think those fundamental lessons are still really well communicated in that book. I, I'm not saying he's the best person in the world yeah. um, or that he's made the best decisions every time because he has done some things since that I sort of raised my eyebrows. But those concepts had not been communicated anywhere else to me before. It was the first time I'd read them in such a good form, and I still think it's a good book to read. So I'm with you that it's an awesome one. <laughs> he has gone a little bit off uh the page at times. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> so. this is a lesson about don't sell your photo or your profile. You know, he's got a recognizable that face and name. Too. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's not um, selling that to other companies to use was a big risk. <laughs> I know people have gone to seminars thinking that they're getting uh, to see him and it's been someone else at the front. So that's a shame yeah. when it's, you know, wrong expectations. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't bode well. It doesn't build trust. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's enough about Robert anyway, but uh, yeah. you went the path of probably a, it was actually similar to mine in that you were rent vesting for a while instead of going out and buying your home straight away. Why did you follow that path? Mm. I did that for 13 years before I bought my first home. So yeah, from 19 to 32. It started out with, I was looking at buying this car and mum said, oh, that could be a deposit on an apartment, Lacey. And I, you know, light bulbs went off. And so that was the path I went down. And to make living in an apartment affordable, I decided to rent out the second room. And looking at the maths at the time, my mortgage was $110 a week. So people are probably going to be falling off their chair, right? (laughs) (laughs) But this is 20, it's 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago now. And so $110 a week on the mortgage and I could rent the second room out for 90. My friends who were in share houses were paying $100 a week. So the mortgage was comparable, but by being able to rent out that second room, I was actually paying less. So it was about making it affordable while I was a student initially, living Mm. in it and taking on a border. And then I um, finished engineering and I grew up in Brisbane and I was, I had taken a job in Kalgoorlie, not knowing where Kalgoorlie was really, but was moving away. And at that point, I was like, oh, I can afford to keep this property and rent it out. And it was only negative geared for a very short time because I'd got in so early because the rent was about $200 a week when I moved out, someone renting the whole place. So very quickly became positively geared. And that was when I realized, hey, that's a great strategy. Buy a property, either live in it or rent it out and then let the tenants pay for it. And I guess that's where I started learning about the difference between why people buy for negative gearing reasons and then the point of having an income. (laughs) But doing that, you get access to that growth. And it was the growth in equity that allowed me to keep buying more properties. And so I'd bought another couple by the time I was 23, then discovered shares. But property has been a foundational one for me. The reason I went to go buy a home was of kids, purely kids, really. Yeah. It was having children. and um, <laughs> well, That I'm was sure why we did as well. And I think yeah. oh, we must have been a similar age to you, you're 32, 33, and, yeah. you know, you just start feeling the desire to build a nest. <laughs> so. It's exactly right. It's the perfect word. And I know why they call it nesting now. <laughs> yeah. We had the first year of my daughter's life, we lived in three different properties because we rented in these short-term rentals while trying to find somewhere to buy. And moving with a small child was painful. 
But just knowing, and I mean, you might have had this experience, you've had a terrible night with the kids, you haven't had any sleep, you haven't had a shower, there's a landlord coming to do an inspection. It's like the the worst feeling where you're like, oh, my God, I've got to pretend to be human. <laughs> or like, please don't come in the house and wake my child up, that kind yeah. of thing. So I, I did at that point say, look, we do need to pick somewhere. And you start thinking about things like school zones, stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the major motivator for me. It's it's not, um, I don't see it as an investment. I see it as like a sleep well a security decision yeah and we touched on what is financial independence but in your book you talk about being time rich as well so how do the two link together and you know why is this something that we all might want (laughs) (laughs) well who doesn't want to have control over their time right to be able to make a decision about how you're going to spend your time um i think most people expect when they hear about the financial independence community it's usually linked to re retire early and so that word retire just puts people off immediately. They go, but I don't want to sit on a beach doing nothing or I don't want to quit my job. I love my job. So using the phrase time rich instead of retire early was my way of trying to explain to people, once you get to financial independence, it's not that you have to stop working, it's that you get to choose. So the, the movement to time rich is this, I have dominion over my time. I get to choose how I spend my time. Now, I work as much, sometimes more now, even though I'm fine, because I love what I do. And I don't have to do it if I don't want to. So when I want to take school holidays off, I can. When I wanted to turn off the business last year while my mum was sick so I could care for her, I could. It's having that option to do it and not wondering about whether you're going to be able to afford to live. So that's the point of being time rich. So they kind of go hand in hand. (laughs) (laughs) And how long do you suggest or see that it takes the average person to to get to being financially independent? I know that's the kind of question people ask me. (laughs) <laughs> all day where it's like, okay, well, how long have you got? How how long is the piece of string? What's, exactly. what's the person's situation? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's not there, there's never one answer for this. And I guess that's why in the book I've put the calculations in there so you can work it out. And there's a calculator on my site so you can look at your personal situation because it is unique. There are people who've gotten to fire in five years, honestly, and they haven't done it on huge salaries. They've just saved like absolute demons and invested and they've had the market timing on their side. So they've gotten there in five years and there are people who've been slogging away for 30 years that aren't there yet. I got there in 12 years. My mum got there in 14 years and we were doing during a boom. I earned a lot more money than she did, but most of it's about what your goal is. How much do you need to live on? And that really sets the sort of the working point from there. So if you say to me, oh, well, I need $200,000 a year to live. Well, then, hey, you got to save a lot more than someone who needs 100000 and you've got to invest a lot more. So you've got to really think about what you need and what's going to make you comfortable to work out that number. So where did this like concept of retirement come from? Because I've always seen it as a bit of a irrelevancy these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is it, it is these days. I mean, people work into their 60s, 70s and 80s quite happily. But the point of it originally, and it, it's it's over a century old, you know, it was developed for people who were reaching the end of their capacity to work. And we're talking about at this point when it was invented, I think it was late 1800s, that the retirement age, which was 70 when it was set, was about the life expectancy. So it was just trying to give people that last couple of years probably on average where they didn't have to work. But it was expected that you would just work until you died. You know, people were probably dropping dead in the fields back then. So that concept of, hey, we should give people at the end of their life a little bit of a living cost so they don't have to work those last few years when they're ill basically and they can't anymore that's where it came from which is pretty impressive to think that someone thought of doing that we're not going to 
make you work until you absolutely drop dead, but it stayed. And the age has come down a little bit from, you know, 70 when it started to sort of mid-60s, though it keeps now going back the other way, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Because our life expectancies have gotten so much better. So where it used to be a few years, now you could be looking at two decades or more in that retirement phase. And I think that's when you say it's a bit irrelevant now. Who wants to sit around for two decades playing golf? I mean, maybe there are people who do, but I think more people would like to have the option to still do either some work or volunteering or whatever. They don't just sit around and wait to die. So, yeah, I think it's maybe getting a little bit outdated, but the acknowledgement that there will reach a point in your life where you are not well enough to work and it's an unreasonable expectation that you would go and earn enough money to cover your living costs, that's fair. We need that net there. It's just about when it works for people and what your priorities are. And you touch on mini retirements. Tell us about these. <laughs> ah, this is this is how it all started for me, I guess. So I read the four-hour work week and the phrase mini retirement comes from that. But the concept's yeah. not like brand new or anything. You would have heard of them as sabbaticals, maybe. You know, they're quite common. It's this idea of why wait till you're in your 60s or 70s to have this freedom of time. Bring small chunks of that forward into your younger life. So I had my first retirement in my late 20s. And I say mini retirement because the intention is it's never permanent. It's like taking a break. But the way that working as an employee works is we're not really well designed for that. Once every 10 years, you might get your three months long service leave. But when you're an employee, it's hard to get those breaks. So I decided to change over to consulting. And in the course of five years, I had five mini retirements with my then partner, who later became my husband, and we're still together. So, And each one was sort of three to six months long. And during that period, you just literally have the equivalent of a retirement. You don't have a calendar necessarily. You can move somewhere else. I went and lived down near Margaret River for a few of mine because I loved it down there. And you actually enjoy that feeling of not having to go to work for a long period of time. You know how it is when you have your second week of holidays and you're finally unwinding? You go, oh, now I've got to go back. Yeah, like, ah, oh, no, I've got to go back. That's what you're trying to avoid that whole, hey, I've now still got another two or three or four or five months of that feeling and then giving yourself some time to recuperate and to do something other than work. And when you do start thinking about your time, and of course, when you're on these many retirements, it's then like, okay, well, what am I actually going to do with myself now that I don't have to answer to that alarm clock per se, or the schedule that is always driving us? You have a concept in your book called the shit to gold ratio. This is probably my favorite part of the whole book because it really changes how you think about the things that you do in life. So you've got to explain some of this uh, to to, to (laughs) us. What is the shit to gold ratio? Yeah, and this came about from a family member saying to me when I was complaining about my work, Lacey, everything has some shit and everything has some gold and you've just got to make sure that there's not so much shit that it outweighs the gold. And that is really the story of life, isn't it, with everything, with your relationships, with where you live, with your job. It's all about the shit to gold ratio. So the first part is you've got to acknowledge that there will be some shit. Every job is going to have the stuff you don't want to do. Every relationship is going to have things that annoy you. But the gold, the bit that you love, that really lights you up, if you've got the ratio right, you can put up with the shit (laughs) because there's (laughs) enough gold to get you through. In between the stuff that's absolutely compulsory anyway, it doesn't matter, like you have to brush your teeth. It doesn't matter whether you find that shit or gold, it has to happen, right? So don't even think about that stuff. It's the stuff that you're putting up with because that's what this requires or that is amazing because it's a highlight of the job that you wouldn't get any other way. So it's important that when you're making decisions that you acknowledge for you what's in each of those buckets because 
it's not going to be the same. You might love administration stuff and I hate it, you know, like so they might be in a gold bucket for one person and in a shit bucket for another. You've got to know what works for you. And I find most of the time when people are unhappy, it's because that ratio has gotten out of whack. There's too much shit piling up and not enough gold to compensate for it. So they say, that's it, I've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, I guess, the point. Not every job's the same, not every person's the same. You can't really put an entire category of people into one. And I do think it's about the company that they work for and the person that they are. So I've had rental agents for 18 years. I've been working with property managers and I have had far and away more good ones than bad ones. Some of them have saved just massive amounts of stress for me and they're the ones that go in gold where I go, you are worth every single penny. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I often send them a bunch of flowers or send them a testimonial or tell their boss they need a raise. (laughs) (laughs) I have had two that drove me nuts that made my life harder. And it was about the individual, not about the company. They just weren't the right people for the job they've been asked yeah. to do. And that's when they add to your stress bucket. And yeah. so I think it's important to acknowledge it's not like a uniform, oh, well, everything's good when you deal with this one type of thing. No, not always. If the person's involved, then, of course, personality and their circumstances make a difference to what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, good example. Mm. So when it comes to, I guess, some of the foundations for the financial education, you mentioned that. There's three personal finance rules worth knowing. Explain a bit about these. Okay. I like the idea that there aren't a lot of rules. And this is, I think, where people get caught is they think, oh, well, there's a list of 10 rules. I must follow them all. It's not necessarily true. So I've tried to really just condense it down to things that I think are absolutely rules and everything else is negotiable. So when I say these are rules, I really do think these are the easiest, simplest, lowest risk way to get to financial independence. But again, you can ignore them if you want to, because there's lots of ways to choose your own adventure. But the three are- Some people may ignore them thinking that, oh, that's too simple. You know, what you're saying is obvious, but then, you know, maybe take a little look at your, hold the mirror up and and ask yourself, are you actually doing these? Because that's what makes the difference over the long run, doesn't it? Yeah, and I guess, you know, we all love a recipe, don't we? Save 20%, put this and this amount here, blah, 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 and it makes life easy. But I think acknowledging my stuff with money, you do have to pay attention to what works for you, which is why I haven't put numbers in any of these. I've said number one rule is you must save. That's it. Pay yourself first. I don't say whether it needs to be 2% or 70% of your salary, but you have to save. I think that's compulsory. There will be people who say you don't need to save, you can use debt, but I think that just adds a lot of risk for people. So that's why I say saving is important. The second one is you need to buy assets, and I use that Robert Kiyosaki definition. An asset puts money in your pocket. And then the final one is I think also a rule, but you can still use it if you use it well. So maybe it's more of a guideline. That's avoid bad debt. So bad debt is for things that aren't assets, the less of that you have, the more you can have of good debt or be focused on saving. So that's the three rules. So they are pretty simple. <laughs> but I have found that within that, there's a myriad of options. So it's about what works for you. Excellent. And so those that can't seem to save, no matter how much income they're on, and they get the promotion and they get the better jobs, but they still don't seem to be getting ahead. Is there any advice that you can give to those people? Because I guess I've been that in my earlier days and it really took me going back and looking at my programming and I'm glad that I've corrected it in the earlier part of my journey but then I do come across those that still have that fundamental flaw I guess so yeah so I think there's two things that are really important in this discussion so the first one I have to acknowledge is sometimes you can't save like it's a legitimate problem and I wouldn't want anyone who is 
if you've got a really tight budget, you've only just got enough income to cover your basic expenses, that is a legitimate thing. It happened for my mum for about 10 years while she was raising two daughters on a single income with not a lot of financial support from my dad. So first of all, if that's you, please don't beat yourself up. It's legitimate. Where I think it becomes awkward is this whole, I can't save, but is it because I'm only buying essentials or because I'm spending more on those things that are a bit more optional. And the situation you described where people get a promotion, what often happens is in our brain, when we get more money, we've spent it mentally within five minutes. Oh, awesome. I can buy that car or I can get that jet ski or whatever it is, depending on how big your promotion is. And because we mentally spend it, we then go and do it. We don't end up with more money. What you want to avoid is that happening if you can, if, you, if your goal is getting to financial independence. But it's, it's just acknowledging that it's a human instinct. Our brain wants that hit of good chemicals that makes you feel nice, the same as you get with sex, as with drugs, as with exercise. Spending does the same thing. So knowing that our brains are going to try and do that to us, you've got to try and save first. Don't wait until you've got what's left over. When you hear I've got that promotion, you go, awesome, I'm going to increase my saving rate. And you send the money off to your savings account. You put it somewhere where it's hard to get to, so not connected to a card and not visible in your online banking, that's a really good trick. Just click the little hide toggle and then it's out of sight, out of mind. And that's, I think you've got to be quite conscious with that when you get something like a pay rise. And I certainly felt it going from university to work for the first time is probably the most pronounced experience for me, going from earning about 15 grand a year to earning about 50. A big jump. Yeah, it was a big jump. But because I had that habit in place of saving, of just always putting aside half of every dollar that came in and it happened automatically. It didn't cause problems for me, but I did notice a lot of my um, fellow graduates went out and bought nice cars, mm. <laughs> which is kind of a habit. you got to try and stop yourself from doing that unless you really need it, I think. That's yeah. the secret for saving. And it's great as your income increases if you can maintain your expenses because then all of a sudden, you know, you do the little calculation. It's like, wow, I'm actually saving 60%, 70%. And every extra dollar over and above that you then earn, like it's it just goes straight to getting you ahead. Whereas exactly. it, it, can, it can be hard when you're not even at that point. And I fully get it because, you know, I was a uni student at making $80 a week stretch as far as possible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, lots of baked uh, beans, right? Noodles. Yeah. <laughs> when I started the business, um, we went through some tough times. I think we got a total of 20 clients in our first year and I burnt through my savings very quickly. I had to move back home and live on the uh, lounge room floor. My parents had actually given away my bedroom at that point. So, yeah, had some tough times. I <laughs> also bet. deciding am I going to keep pushing ahead with this business thing or mm. I had people um, going to work. Some of my brothers and sisters still lived at home and they'd go to work in the morning through the lounge room and I'd be, you know, still asleep. <laughs> so perhaps That's I should have been up and doing more. <laughs> well, no, but what a good test of your commitment as well, yeah. you know, like it having those humbling. sort of sessions. Well, and it can also, I think, motivate people when you've had that experience. Definitely. I do see this a lot, particularly I see it as a general statement with a lot of single mums who've gone through that period of like a real shock where living costs have all of a sudden gone, oh, my gosh, I've got to get control of these. That commitment and dedication comes from that experience is really powerful and I see those people sometimes just get there so much quicker than other people because (laughs) suddenly they're really committed, you know. It really matters to them. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Mm. I think the GFC also taught people a lot of lessons that they have to (laughs) keep their their eye on their money and their expenses more as well. So, yeah, some of the harder lessons... (laughs) Teach us best, don't they? 
Yeah, sadly, we have to go through it, but that's what experience is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lacey, thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to have to get you back for a part two because we've got so much to cover. And next time we'll be going into things like asset selection, cash flow versus growth assets, what it's uh, worth paying for when it comes to advice and specialists around you and how to get to financial independence sooner and does it actually solve all your problems. So lots to cover next time. Join us on part two soon.